Welcome to episode 167 of the Women of the Military podcast. It's 2022 and I'm excited to get back to podcasting. I really enjoyed the break and I hope that you were able to catch up on some episodes while I was taking a break from podcasting. But I'm ready to start 2022 strong and continue with weekly podcast episodes and I'm excited about this season with some new ideas and more stories of women who have served in the military. So I hope you're excited about 2022 and I have created a quick survey in the show notes that would take less than five minutes that I would really appreciate if you took the time to check out just to give me more advice on what the direction of the podcast should be going and how I can make it better for you. If you had the chance to listen to the last episode of 2021, I was interviewed by Trish Algrea-Smith and this week I get to interview her. So Trish and I met when she did my open call interview for women who have served in the military, and her story is included in the Women of the Military book. And I love that this interview dives in deeper into new areas that aren't covered in the book and is just a great example that the Women of the Military podcast, although it tells the story of military women, it only tells a tiny piece of everyone's story, and there's so much more to tell. So if you want to hear more about Trish's story and about other women who've served in the military, go to the show notes and click to order Women of the Military. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Trish. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Amanda. And you were in my Women of the Military book. So it's kind of fun to do a follow-up interview a few years later. That was 2018. Yes, that was just after I got back. We got back to the States from Germany after living there for three years, came back. I had met you. And then we, I think we met at an, an NMSN summit. We met at MIC. Oh, MIC. Yes. Military Influencer Conference. And that was the one that was in Orlando. Still one of my favorite conferences ever in terms of location. <laughs> yeah. And it was a lot smaller than the next one. So it was really intimate. I really yes. I felt like I got to meet most of the attendees and I was intrigued when I met you as far as what you were planning on doing. And so when you, I remember you had started even before the podcast, you had the blog, yep, Airman to Mom. And so I was intrigued and you had asked for fellow women veterans if we wanted to fill out a questionnaire about our experiences in the military and specifically our experiences while deployed. That was it. Yeah. And then we realized as we were talking, you know, years, years down the line, and we've been working together on different things. Wait a minute. I've never actually been on the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought that was funny because I was like, oh, we never actually did an interview for the podcast. And no. So <laughs> 
because I've done this and I know every once in a while you've asked for, hey, write your thoughts on this or comment with your thoughts on this. And I've always provided comments in writing, but wait, yeah, I've never been recorded. So we're going to do your story today. And we were talking before we hit record that it's going to be a little bit different questions because back in 2018, I was really focused on deployments and I don't think I understood the complexity of military women. And so it's going to be a different interview. And if you want to hear more of her story, you can go get Women of the Military and I'll link to it in the show notes. So let's get started with why did you decide to join the military? So I originally decided to join because I was looking for a way to pay for college. I'm a dedicated listener to your podcast, so I know that I am not alone. And the reason for this, I came in in uh, 1999. At the time, I was, you know, four years before that, I wanted to go to a very expensive private school for college. My heart was set on it. There was no way that I could pay for this unless I took extensive student loans. And so I was looking at different scholarship opportunities. And Air Force ROTC, in terms of their scholarships, that was something that appealed to me because they paid for all of your tuition if you were selected. So the military wasn't unfamiliar to me as far as being the first, definitely the first female, if not the first person within my immediate family to join the military. I didn't have that link to the military via a family, but I definitely had living in the area of Northern Virginia and within a mile and a half of the Pentagon. I knew a lot of folks that worked for the military, usually for the Pentagon. They were there at the Pentagon, Bowling Air Force Base, Andrews Air Force Base. And they were, I had classmates who were military dependents. And so it was around me, but I never thought of asking the question until I got to high school. And I was really curious, like, how do we do this? How do we join? How do we? And I really just had to ask people. And when people ask, well, how did you find out? Because they didn't have all the resources, at least on the internet. Well, we didn't really have the internet as we know it today. (laughs) You could go to the library, you could find a recruiter. And then there was me. When you travel on the the 16 line up Columbia Pike on the bus line on Metro to going towards the Pentagon, and you can take the, at the time, you could take the interchange to get onto the relatively new Metro train rail stations there. Um, I would see people in uniform and I would literally just ask hey, so what do you do? Do you like it? I'm thinking of doing it, you know, get applying for Air Force ROTC. And it's just interesting the responses you get. There are people that absolutely loved being in the military. And there are people that were a bit more pragmatic about, you know, like, oh, there's going to be parts you love. There's going to be parts that you don't like. It's a great opportunity to have your college paid for. And then um, others that just, they, they didn't really like working in a complete office environment. And they said, yeah, this is just one of the things you have to do. And if you can avoid doing this, that's great. Looking at that, that's where I joined. I said, well, it doesn't look like it's a bad life. And it looks like it's a great opportunity. Get your college paid for, and then you would get some good career experience as soon as you went on active duty. I remember telling you this, you know, when we, on a previous call that I had found my journal from when I was in high school at around this time. And then through college, when I'm looking at asking people, what did they do in the military? And did they like it? And it is interesting, the responses I'm giving you now are based on the things that I read back then. That's cool that you wrote it down and that you have that history. And 
Sometimes people send me messages on social media and they'll be like, I know it's kind of weird, but I'm going to ask you about joining the military. And I'm like, it's not weird. That's my job. You're supposed to ask me. Like, <laughs> if I'm like, don't talk to me, then what am I doing? And so I think it's really cool that you were brave enough to just go up to random people and ask them. And I'm sure they all gave you an answer. They did. You know, some people, as we say, they had the waggy tail, you know, the, like a dog with a waggy tail where they're really excited to talk to you. And others are just trying to figure out how long till their next metro stop. But it was good. It was good to get men and women. I mean, there there's, weren't that many, but it was neat to see both. And then also enlisted an officer perspective. But I didn't know who I was asking, what their rank was when I asked. I just new uniforms and I was pretty close on which service they were at. I was corrected a few times, but you know, you learn as you keep asking people and then they correct you. I think once I was a cadet um, and I actually was wearing, you know, an Air Force uniform, even if it wasn't the most current, as long as I was wearing an Air Force uniform, you would find more people willing to talk to you. When I was a high schooler and I looked like I was 10 or 11 because I looked just really young, I think they would give you that look, that strange look of, why are you asking? And then when you explain to them, oh, I'm looking at a way to pay for college, oh, then they start talking a little bit more. So did you get a four-year ROTC scholarship? Yes, I did. To my understanding, at the time, most of the scholarships were given for technical degrees of some sorts, so what we would call STEM uh, fields. And so I was one of the few non-STEM degree award recipients or scholarship recipients, and it was a full four-year scholarship. I was applying to the undergraduate business school at my college that was definitely not a STEM or technical degree of any type. To my understanding, I think it was 10% or less of most of the scholarship recipients were received were not technical majors. So I thought that very, I, I didn't, th- I was just happy I got one and I didn't realize how fortunate I was until that statistic was explained later. And was this pre 9-11? This was pre 9-11, yes. Yeah, I know 9-11 changed a lot of things. So when did 9-11 happen? So I came into college in 95, graduated in 99, and that's when I um, came onto active duty. And so it was about two years into active duties when 9-11 happened. And so you come in, I know I mentioned this in the book for my story, but I think about it too, especially after this year and us leaving Afghanistan, the how much that changed the trajectory of my career and how I viewed my service at that point. Before it was the, this was a great way to pay for college and get real life work experience. You get leadership experience that no one else is willing to give you when you're just out of college. In the military, sure, you know, this is your job. This is your mission. You've got this go and you'll figure it out. At 9-11, that was when it really hit home of what this is more than a job. To stay in the military is a calling, and you do it not just because it's great for paying for something, not just because it's an opportunity for you, but it's you do it because you're serving your country. And when you say you're serving your country, you're serving the people that are in your community, and you're serving the person that's next to you. And that meaning change, it just, it hits you, and it makes you grow up. I think back, and I see pictures of myself back then when I was looking through pictures, and I look at how young I was, but... On 9-11, you felt like you went from being that naive, young person to a person who has now chosen to dedicate their life to something. This is no longer just a job. 
So you kind of join for the benefits in a way to pay for college. But then when 9-11 happened, it kind of triggered something into you of like what service in the military really meant. Oh, yes. Do you think that drove you to the military? Some underlying thing of like more than just paying for college? I, I think it did. It's just I didn't realize it at the time, right? You know, we're maybe it's because of maturity level. No matter how intelligent you may be or think you are when you're that age, it takes sometimes a experience or some type of impact like that. You know, that's what was a very specific memory, a very specific experience to really bring everything together. If it's not your life flashing before your eyes, it really makes you question what your priorities are. And that was that first moment of what is this meaning? Because this means you will now serve and do whatever is asked because your country has been attacked. And there, most of us answered yes without any hesitation. It was that rededication. And you saw all of us. I would see my fellow lieutenants looking fresh-faced and young. You could see that passion ignited in us. I mean, it was no matter how silly we may have been the day before or looking forward to the next CGO get-together... <laughs> or what we were going to do for the weekend, that day changed everything. And that was, no, this is what we are meant to do. This is what we're called to do. And this is what we are going to do. Yeah, that's crazy. So I kind of skipped over you actually joining. What career field were you doing? And so when I first came on, and I'll, I'll, this is the career field I was in when uh, 9-11 happened. And that was, um, I was in aircraft maintenance. I did not know what that was. I didn't sign up for that as one of my top five choices. Um, I didn't know what happened. I was, uh, you know, when you talk to people um, who work at the Pentagon, who ride the Metro, and you're asking for jobs, I pick things that I thought, oh, this is great. That goes with the degree that I'm going because I didn't have a technical degree. I said, oh, well, let me do things like finance acquisitions. There was contracting because um, I was I was studying finance and accounting. So that made sense to me to pick those type of fields. Next thing I know, I'm in aircraft maintenance and I'm working on the flight line with F-15 C and D aircraft. And I'm looking, thinking, what? How am I here? And I don't think I was the only one who thought that at the time, because I didn't quite understand how to just fake it till you make it at this point. Your first day on the job, you show up to your flight, of which you are now the flight commander. You look really young, at least I looked really young at the time, and I had 103 people that worked for me. And my entire flight meets me when I first arrive, all lined up, and they're looking at me wondering, how old is she? <laughs> And where did she come from? Or, oh boy, it's a new one. <laughs> and, you know, here I'm thinking of, I have never managed any type of organization that had maybe more than a few people in it, let alone 103 people. What am I going to do? And we haven't, you know, when we reported in at the time, we didn't actually go to a tech school or any um, training yet. I just, we just reported in and you show up to your job, you have some in processing, but you show up at your job and this is what happens. This, this is your new flight. So it's kind of like a shock to the system. It is. It is a shock to the system. But at this time, I, I, you, you have, you kind of get to know the people that you can trust that you work with, you you feel them out and you learn very quickly. The willingness to work hard, but also make mistakes is, is a good thing. You have to have both because 
at the beginning, when you don't really know anything about what you're doing at the beginning, you're going to have, you're going to realize you're going to make a lot of mistakes, the willingness to do it and the willingness to say, yep, I messed up. That did not always come very easy to me because everything to this point, academically, things came relatively easy for me. And I did not realize how things in life came pretty relatively easy to me. I was pretty capable, but with that capability, I didn't really necessarily have confidence. And in a job like this, you needed you need confidence. People need to feel that even if you're still learning at what you're doing, that you are confident that you will learn it, you will take care of them, and you will be there when they need you to be there. That is a lot of rough weeks, days, weeks, months until you get there. And I I look back at it then. I thought it was really hard. And I look back at that and I'm grateful for all of those days. But I'm also grateful of everybody who supported me and who believed in me. I don't think I would have made it as far as I did if I didn't have mentors, not just mentors for people that I worked with. I had a great first squadron commander, Fang Johnson. He was amazing in terms of his mentorship. He knew when to be hard on me. He knew when to just talk to me. And he knew when to provide advice and when he needed to step in. But also when he needed to have hands off and just let me make the mistakes and stumble as I needed to stumble. But also the people that worked technically worked for me. I always joke about that. I don't believe they worked for me. I think they worked with me to get me to where I needed to be. They were my best teachers. And I love that I can still keep in touch with them on LinkedIn and see what they're up to. And uh, those senior NCOs, non-commissioned officers, they were the ones that really taught me everything that was the basic foundation for not just being a great military officer, but being a good person and a good leader over time. Yeah. So it's so interesting to hear about because like the maintenance career field is pretty rough. It is. And like the confidence that you have to grow to survive it. And but you also had that supportive network that helped you with a good commander and then good senior non-commissioned officers. Yes. And, you know, it's funny what you'll hear. I hear so many stories of what happens when people don't have that support or can't find that support. And I am not sure if part of that is just my personality, because I love to talk. I like to be social. It's how I get energized and get that energy. And that just that helped a little bit in terms of reaching out and developing that network, because I could easily talk about the job, but also about anything else not related to the job and find common interests. And that helped build that bridge so they could you could talk to other people and then they they feel like they could talk to you back in return. Again, this is 20 something years later talking about that in perspective. I'm sure if I looked at journal entries from back then, I'd be like, "Oh my gosh, what was I doing today?" or like, "I messed that up." <laughs> that would not be the introspective uh, outlook that I had at the time. So, let's jump forward a little bit in your career and talk about some of the highlights from your career. So highlights in my career, you know, in the book, we talk about the deployments and what I learned from that deployments, things that I didn't have a chance to mention in the book that it would be great to talk about now is I, I don't talk about how much confidence I really developed. You know, we talk about leadership skills and we talk about standing up for myself, but just that overall confidence, because I think of how I used to talk to people or people I work with or address people and how, you know, I was a little bit timid. I would use the word just a lot where I think I, you know, maybe 
I use those qualifiers a lot less, especially when I'm working. When I'm on the job and I'm working in my business, I'm working with a client, I'm working with subjects that I'm photographing, I am much more direct, much more confident. I don't use the words I think. I say, this is what should happen. This is my proposal. It's it's interesting how the, the syntax changes, even body framing. I just think of when I, you know, I would almost shrink a little bit, you know, when you don't quite stand up straight and you're just, it's almost like you're hiding a little bit when you're, you're not sure how to approach folks or you just try to work super, super hard thinking that that's going to be what, you know, gets you people's attention. And now I realize I don't have to do that, that my work speaks for itself, that I am capable that I have qualities that I bring to the table. I don't need to beg you for work. I don't need to beg you for your attention. I can give you, this is who I am. Would you like to work with me or not? Again, different when you've left uniform. You can apply those a little bit more readily than I think when you're in the service. I think it's funny because the main characteristics that I've been thinking a lot about from my deployment was gaining confidence. So it's like so crazy that like we're talking about that character development and confidence. And I think every experience will influence where your character goes. Good, bad, indifference. Every experience leads to where your character is today. We see that in stories. We see that in life. That being said, also with that character development, you also realize what your calling is, what your purpose is in life, or at least in that stage of your life, what your purpose is, and then what your priorities are. When you first are in, especially right after 9-11, it was, I am here to serve. My country comes first above all else. That's easy to say when you are single and you have no children and no other obligations. That changes once you start, you've served years in, the years pass since that pivotal moment. And now you are married, you are starting a family, you have other priorities that are encroaching. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. But now it's a let's go look at our life where it is today. And what is really important? Serving our country is still very important to me serving my community doing what that level of service serving the person who's my neighbor, that's still important to me. But there are other ways to do it other than going full throttle in a military career. I know that was a question that was touched upon, but we've never really discussed it in detail is what made me transition from active duty to the reserves. And then what made me transition again? I always joke, I feel like I've transitioned two or three times. So I, I feel like I'm the authority on telling folks what it's like at different stages in your life, different transitions. And then I transition from the reserves into being a military spouse, a military dependent and leaving the uniform. We're going to dive deeper into your story, but I really like hearing your story because I didn't consider the reserves or the guard. And I'm always like, oh, maybe I should have. And then I hear your story and I'm like, maybe it's good that I just got out. (laughs) And so I think that the guard and the reserves can offer flexibility, but it's not right for everyone in everyone's situation. Yes. I say three words. If you're going to commit to that, whatever you do, look at your dependent care plan. And that applies whether you are 
deciding to leave the military and join the reserves of the guard, or whether you are deciding to leave the uniform altogether. And you need to make sure you know what you're, if you have dependents, a dependent care plan, or what it is that you want to do afterwards. Does that move actually make sense for you? Yeah. So let's talk about, so you went from active duty and you picked reserves. What went into that decision and what was that transition like? What many people don't know is that we had trouble conceiving our first child. It took me almost three years. We weren't sure why. You know, you go through the, they take a look at everything that, you know, make sure that your system actually is working. My husband's was good. And we were just having trouble conceiving. And part of it, I I know I worked long hours. I loved working. I still do. I still love working. But I didn't think that was it. We just weren't sure. And we needed to make a change and I needed to take some time. I also wanted to be in a position because I knew we were having trouble conceiving that we could stay together. And that was becoming harder and harder as both of us were making rank. There just weren't necessarily jobs. At this point, I had transitioned from aircraft maintenance to acquisitions. At some point, I later found out about two years in when I was in active duty that I was part of an active duty experience program. I forget what they call it now, but it's when you actually have some type of field experience before they bring you back to something like contracting or acquisitions. And you're working program development and procuring weapon systems for the Air Force. So they had us on uh, experience in the field, and then they brought us back after three years and brought us into acquisitions. And so that you would cross-train I guess is the closest term that would be uh, applicable to this and cross-train back into the field that you were originally supposed to go into. So I was like, oh, yay. So this makes sense. This was actually on my uh, sheet of things that I picked. Yay. So here I am going back. And I realized that when I made that switch, I had married somebody who still stayed in aircraft maintenance. And there were very few options for both of us to stay together over time where he could still be in aircraft maintenance and I could still be in acquisitions. And it was very difficult to go back to aircraft maintenance at the time. I knew people that did it, but it wasn't that easy to go back because they already came up with their manpower numbers of where you know officers needed to be. And that's where I needed to be at the time. So with that in mind and with our struggle with a fertility and a struggle conceiving, we didn't want to be stationed away from each other. We know people that geobatched and it worked out great. It did not work out for us because we wanted to start a family. So that's when I made the decision to go into the reserves. It was a difficult decision for me. It was not easy. I, I really enjoyed my time on active duty. I didn't. I wasn't sure how this was going to work, but I knew reservists at the base we were at. They seemed to be able to work as many days as they could find. And I liked how flexible it was. They could pick out days. They... They seemed to be working the same jobs I was working. So it felt like a really good transition. And that was the IMA or Individual Mobilization Augmentee Program. So you could actually work with the active duty units. You weren't assigned to a a traditional reserve or a, a traditional guard unit. You were working with the active duty units but you were the reservist. I loved that experience. I loved being an IMA. It was almost the best of both worlds where I didn't have to be separated in terms of wherever we moved, we could move together. And I still could participate and still be in in a career field that I did like. Yeah, IMA is a really great and like not very well known program. 
And I wouldn't have known if, again, we go back to the not being afraid to ask other people. <laughs> and so, you know, you ask and you're like, oh, you're a reservist. How does that work? And they, they're more than happy to explain to you how all of this works. And then when the opportunity came where I didn't quite want to leave, leave, but I knew I had to make a change, that was the best. That was the best option that presented itself. So it sounds like things were going really good as an IMA. Yes. Then you got out. So yeah, (laughs) I loved IMA because that was one of the first opportunities that we could actually work remotely. You know, that was the early, early years of actual remote work. We had um, opportunities to do that where you could do it over email and phone calls and VTCs no matter where I lived. And then I would just fly back for times when I had to actually be in person for things. And I loved it. And then we actually, it was when our second child arrived. I mean, I was grateful. Everything worked out. We were able to have this point up to two kids. Second child arrived and we moved to a base that was relatively remote for Air Force. Uh, we don't have that many, but we do have. And we, we moved to a base where there were limited child care options, quite frankly. And I just was not happy with what was there, you know, what I saw at the time. It didn't work for how I wanted our kids to be raised if I was going to be away from them. And that was a hard thing for me because you're looking at somebody who just pinned on major. And here there's opportunities and I, I had to make that choice between I could continue on as a major with more opportunities, possibly an opportunity to have an equivalent of command where I was. You know, I had to make a de- decision as to how are my kids going to be taken care of? And this is where I go back to the three words, dependent care plan. It wasn't just about the child's care. It, then it came down to now we have two kids. My husband is now a commander. What's the dependent care plan if both of us have to be TDY or one of us has to deploy and the other one is is working hours that I can't get away. I didn't have that many opportunities to deploy as an IMA, which I was grateful for. I didn't have to deploy. But at the same time, there were, depending on the position you took, you, you know, work became a priority and you had to figure out your dependent care if, if that was the case. It was being so far from family or friends that had the ability to help out with your kids, at least that flexibility to do that, because we're so far, the closest major city was El Paso, Texas, two hours away. I mean, it was just an area, a region of the country where we didn't know as many people. And that, I mean, that really, that was rough. That was a rough decision. It was a decision of which I cried over. I cried over a lot because I I knew what the right decision was. And the right decision was, I can't just put my kids in child's care here. This isn't going to work. But it was also a decision of if I don't have them in any type of child's care or that was full time, that I'm going to now be a stay at home mom. That is really difficult to go from all of a sudden somebody who is used to working and I love working, who is used to working a nine to five, actually longer than nine to five job and used to leading a lot of people working on multi-million dollar programs to being a stay at home mom. It was not something I envisioned, especially if you never envision it for your life. This was not part of my life plan, for sure. I always thought, oh, there's always, there's, there'll be a way, or at least I can work part-time. Something where I could get that, no, that, that was not possible. It was, all right, I am now a full-time mom. I mean, I know where you were stationed because I was stationed there. <laughs> yes, so you know, you know, yes. Yeah, not only is it 
like a small town in the middle of nowhere. There's like nothing. There's no other opportunities. Now there's a lot more remote stuff. So maybe it would be a little bit different, but then you still have childcare. But there's not very many people there. And it, I mean, it was fun when I was a lieutenant to be with a bunch of other lieutenants and we didn't have like to worry about kids. And it kind of <laughs> changes everything when yes, you Yes, like, it does. It does to go to a place when, yes, you have a family, you have kids, you have their competing priorities and you have to pick one because one is going to win out. And um, my family wins out because that's really that's who I am. You know, that's that was the right call to make at the time. But that doesn't mean there weren't a lot of tears shed over that. And I really had a difficult time with that tr- transition. Because most people, they say, when you're ready to transition out of the military, you should start planning this about one to two years out. Not, it is now on your front doorstep. So I had no plan. There was no transition plan. It was, all right, I've got this. I'm going to do this. My husband laughs thinking back on this because he said, yeah, I could see that this was a plan that was not going to work in the long term. This was a plan that you had to live with because, well, this is the choice that we had to make. As a family, we made this choice. And and we always talk about it. This was a family choice because he said, are you sure? I said, I am really sure. My gut is saying, no, this this is the way it has to be. (laughs) But he watched me turn into a full-time mom and volunteer. So anything I could take my kids to, I would. And so he said, yeah, I see you working for free a lot. Um, (laughs) You obviously want to get out and be with people and you actually want to work. So yeah, I I didn't see that that was this, the stay at home mom position or season of your life was going to last very long. Yeah. He, he, it, it frustrated him a little bit. He said, you're not getting paid. I'm trying to really understand how you're not getting paid and you're working this many hours. But you ended up starting a small business, photography. Did that happen while you were still there or did it take a few years? It took almost three years for it to really come together. I needed three years to get my minds wrapped around the fact that I was finally out of uniform. It took that long for me to transition in my head because even though my circumstances changed, my attitude, it didn't have time to downshift, really. I needed those three years to try a lot of things that you will never see on LinkedIn or in any resume, but I can mention it on the podcast because I think other people have been here. There were MLM opportunities that I have done. I have worked in an H&R Block branch office. I helped the manager there. We were incredibly successful. I actually got an award for work. I have done lots of side gigs and I still do side gigs for things like helping people build uh, proposals for government contracts and for other, you know, um, corporate contracts because I'd worked in that area for so long and it's still fun to do that. But it was, it's just really interesting. It's lots of little things that I just did on the side because I didn't know what I wanted. If photography was always a hobby, I loved having my camera. I had my husband bought me my first nice digital camera when my eldest daughter was born. That was back in just before she was born in 2006. I still remember this December of 2006 when digital cameras have finally matured enough where you could trust them to actually take photos and maintain the quality that they have today as long as you shoot in raw. It was always a hobby. I always took 
photos. I always loved it, but I never thought of it as a career or a business or something that could make money. That took a few years. And most of that was my own mindset. That really had nothing to do with conditions of business around me. That's just what I thought in my head that I was capable of doing or that people actually wanted to pay me for. I say that it takes between like three to five years after you leave the military to transition. So there's like, you know, you're transitioning. And that's from like a year or two before to like five years after. And then there's the people who have actually transitioned because I don't think people realize like how long it takes because you think, oh, I transitioned. I'm not in the military. It's like, yeah, but you're not really done yet. Yeah, no. Right. And it is interesting. You can say that to someone. They won't believe you until they're about two or three years down the road. And then and if they are actually take the time to reflect back, then they'll see it. Other than that, you just have to let everyone have their own journey going through it. And um, it made me more empathetic to people who are going through it now, because it's, it isn't always planned. Whether they're a parent or not, if they had an unplanned transition, so they didn't even have time to think about it at least a year out and start thinking of things they may be interested in doing, things they may want to try out, give themselves grace. Sometimes it just happens. They had to separate whether it's medical, some other life circumstance, and they just had to leave earlier than they were expecting. I love working with them. I I love being able to just talk to them about what their story is and how they are doing literally checking in with them. How are you doing today? What are you thinking of doing? And letting them know it's okay, that it will take some time. There is, and everybody has their own timetable. And the first time, the first thing you try to do for your transition may not work out. You are just going to have to try a few things until you find the thing that works for you. TAPS isn't it. Just doing one transition program that's, that is mandated for you to separate will not be enough. You may have to do a, a few different programs and finding the voice for the people that speak to you. Yeah, I think that's really true that everyone has to have their own time and everyone's situation is different. And like, there's a statistic that like, most veterans don't stay in the first job that they get right out of transitioning. And they're like trying to change that. And I'm like, I don't really know if there's a way to like, I don't think it's really a bad thing. It's kind of like part of the process. Of course, it'd be great if you could figure out where you need to be. Sometimes you have to be in the wrong place before you can realize where the right place is. Exactly. And this goes back to, hey, it's like when we were lieutenants or young, when you first came in and you made a lot of mistakes, a lot. Things that I cringe at thinking about sometimes, but then I realize. It's okay to make those mistakes. Now I can say that. It's okay to make those mistakes because it just makes you a lot more appreciative of the wins <laughs> that you have now and the mistakes that you, you avoid in the future and the things that you learned from it, the people that were really there for you when you made those mistakes and uh, how to say, oops, or I'm sorry, or that didn't work out. All right, let's try something else. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today because... People heard photographer, so they probably think you're a portrait photographer, and that's not what you do. So let's talk a little bit about what you do and the name of your company, if people want to learn more about it. What I do, I am a, a corporate commercial photographer here in the Washington, D.C. area. What that means is that I take photographs for 
organizations, typically for their marketing, advertising, public relations, and that includes corporate events, headshots, branding, photography, both product and then the actual service that an organization or an individual provides. My business is Photography by Trisha Legray-Smith. It has evolved from just me, from me taking side gigs, helping other photographers out to now taking uh, jobs on my own and then hiring and bringing on other photographers to help me out, depending on the size of any assignment that we're given. And on top of that, I still love doing uh, press. So you'll see me working with Ameriforce Media is one of the media places that I, I love working with Bianca and her team for her magazines. And it keeps me engaged with the military community since it covers the Reserve and National Guard, military families, and military influencers is their newest magazine, the Military Influencer Magazine, which I think is an interesting, that was an interesting twist on our military community. Did I ever think that the military community that was initially, I don't know, reticent, if, the, if that's the word about taking on social media when it first came out, now that they were embracing it and we have military influencers in our community. That we do. Yes. You know, I don't just do portraits. I do portraits, but I only do them twice a year. And usually for my corporate clients, because they want to gift them to their team members and staff or literally my neighbors because they're here. And yes, I I love I still love doing it. But that is definitely I used to do it more often, depending on where we lived. But in this area, for sure, that is not the bulk of my work. And you did my headshots. That was really fun. (laughs) It was. It was a lot of fun. We did outfit changes and everything. It was more than just headshots. We did full branding. Yeah, it was great. So... I always like to end the interview with what advice would you give to young women who are considering the military? I would say, don't be afraid to reach out. That is the one thing that I'm glad I did. And you can reach out. There's so many resources now available. You can reach out to people. If you don't know anyone personally, there are resources like yours, you know, um, the Girl's Guide to the Military that are online. You can look up how to join the military as a woman. I bet you if you if we look that up, there'd be an incredible amount of resources that pop up. And there's if you look at women veteran groups too, there is going to be somebody that was willing to talk to you just because we all have different experiences. And don't just ask one person, but ask many people because all of us have different experiences, good and bad. And it's really important to hear both sides to see if this life is really for you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story and for adding on to the stuff that I already knew. I learned a lot more about your experience and your story. Thank you for having me on, Amanda. And I'm glad we finally took the time to do it. episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.